thank you for the invitation. It's a great pleasure to be here. The Anne Noble image before us is of Audrey Thetford helping her mother Gladys wash her hair. Audrey was disabled and lived at home with her mother. But as the photographs show, the care was mutual. So I saw Anne's exhibition here in the mid-1990s. Thank you. Those images, so counter to the glamorous, images of glamorous women that populate the media, stayed with me as a constant reminder of the importance of the hidden work of women. We might wonder in 2017 if we are past caring about women's history, that we've moved on to some post-feminist world. But I think those of you here are testament to the fact that we are not past caring and that we still have much to do. So today I want to think about the hidden lives of caring and their meanings in the past and how the value attached to caring might have changed over time. Ivan Illich named the emotional work of, I quote, enhancing the status and well-being of others, shadow labour, those unseen efforts which, like housework, do not quite count as labour, but are nevertheless crucial to all our daily lives. So here's a second and noble image of Audrey and Gladys Thetford, which captures, I think, what is so hard to put into words, the ineffable nature of caring, which is so important to us. Here we see the physicality of care, as we did in the hair washing image, the importance of touch. We could call Gladys Thetford's care for her daughter work, or we could call it love. That naming has implications for how it is viewed by the wider society. Here's how Gladys described it. I don't think my life would be so easy if I didn't have Audrey. I'm sure of it. I wouldn't have the companionship I've got. Work or care, one is usually paid for and the other usually is not. Much legal time has been spent debating the issue of natural support. The Ministry of Health in 2012 opposed paying family members as caregivers, a fight they lost, on the grounds of opposition to professionalising or commercialising family relationships. Such relationships, they argued, should be regarded as natural supports. This was defined as, and I quote, supports that can be accessed by all people who live and work in any community within New Zealand. They are readily available and reasonably easy to access. They describe the personal resource an individual has within them. They describe the support that is available from family members, neighbourhoods and community social groups, schools, church groups, scouts, girl guides, service groups, sports clubs and so on. They are supports that people access on a very informal basis and are, in reality, are accessed by most New Zealanders. Most of us here would know, I think, instinctively that much of that support was, despite the careful gender-neutral language of public policy documents, provided by women. In completing my book, I became fascinated by the transitions we have seen in caring that the care of children and the elderly expected in the past to be the responsibility of families and to take place in family homes or benevolent or church institutions might now take place in a, in a commercial context. My own career has been made possible by that very context, 
My children were all in daycare from infancy and after school care in primary school, and my mother spent her last three years in a small rest home near our house. My academic work took priority over caring in a way unimaginable in my mother's life. I am not nostalgic for a past where women did the bulk of unpaid caring, if that is indeed in the past. But I want to honour the importance of caring by discussing it in a variety of historically specific contexts. I want to think about the resources women drew on to make their empathy possible. Those resources included training and caring from a young age. Think of dolls and prams, and the care of younger siblings. There were the examples of older women engaged in caring work. And there was what one woman described as an inner knowing. Perhaps most importantly, up until the 1960s, there was often a commitment to the church, which placed an emphasis on women's selflessness as central to family and community life, and praised such commitment. It was, after all, the religious conviction of the Women's Christian Temperance Union that filled women with confidence that they could do anything, including seek the vote, granted, as we all know, in 1893. It often seems that we have to move beyond any notion of caring for work to be valued. In order to seek professional respect, childcare had to become early childhood education, for example. Somehow this feels like an uncomfortable yardstick of progress, which we should think more about. Why is caring not enough? We seek, historian Emily Abel has argued, to create the illusion of independence by disregarding the care on which we depend. And this desire to appear independent is also shaped by gender. To be a good woman has meant putting others first. To be a good man has meant to put work first. Ali Hochschild has noticed, noted in The Managed Heart that there is really no male equivalent for the term mothering. Fathering is usually used in the biological sense of fathering a child, whereas mothering is a much broader concept. So how do we think of this unpaid labour of a highly interpersonal sort? The value of caring to Ngāi people is evident in an exhibition, Hakui, Women of Kaitahu. And this exhibition was at the Otago Museum uh, and is currently at the Canterbury Museum. Has anyone had an opportunity to see it? I hope you do uh, have a chance. So the exhibition is a celebration of the caring Kaitahu women have done over the 19th and 20th centuries to ensure the continuity of their culture. Paniwera here with her daughter, for example, married in the mid-1800s and had several children who accompanied on the family... Uh, food collecting expeditions, the traditional Mahika Kai trails. Pani was a gifted weaver, and if you see the exhibition, some of the samples of her work are in it. And she passed on her skills to Hana. Nationally, by 1896, the Māori population was under 40,000. Of those, only 18,260 were female. The Māori population Māori proportion of the total population had fallen to 5.5% by 1900. One estimate suggests that by the 1890s, 
50% of Māori girls died before age seven, and just 42% reached adulthood. Women such as Hera Tuahia, pictured here with her cousin Hana Pirihera, helped reverse the downward spiral. Married in 1883, Hera bore 14 children. For women working for the survival of their communities, the future of their children became paramount. The Kaitahu women celebrated in the exhibition focused on that future. They helped build churches and schools, taught their children to weave, to collect traditional foodstuffs, and to care for their marae. Combining elements of modernity, establishing schools, for example, and holding on firmly to traditions, they rebuilt their communities. At the same time as the Māori population was in crisis in the later 19th century, the settler population was burgeoning. Pākehā women who married in the 1850s and 1860s averaged 7.4 births. The um, 1952 Her Story Diary records the exceptional case of Sarah Ann Taylor in the middle here, who bore 21 children, only one of whom died at birth. Married at 16 to a Southland banker, she ran a highly ordered household. The eight girls had fresh, white frilled aprons every day, before the invention of polyester, and their 12 brothers kept splendid health. Not all were blessed with such robustness. The risk of dying in childbirth was high. Historian Ali Clark suggests that at a conservative estimate, one mother died <coughs> for every 195 births in the 1870s. Women provided care at both ends of life, as midwives and as attendants to the dying. Recurrent pregnancies depleted women's physical resources and made them less able to withstand prolonged labour or septicemia, both of which were common causes of maternal death. <coughs> Frances Porter and Charlotte MacDonald's wonderful collection of 19th century writings, My Hand Will Write What My Heart Dictates, abounds with instances of care and suggests how women found strength in the face of adversity. Anna Dirks, for example, wrote in her diary of her severe illness following the birth of a healthy boy. I fought with every effort and with prayer and sighing. The Lord heard my prayer and permitted me to get better again. When delivered of a premature child at five months, Anne faced much suffering, but she noted, how glad I am that the child was not born dead, but would receive emergency baptism. That is the special comfort of God's grace. The death of a mother required others to step in and care. My dear Hannah, Jay Notes wrote of her 19-year-old daughter in 1867, was confined on the 16th of July at half past three o'clock in the morning, and was dead at quarter to 11 the same morning, and had left a fine boy, and we have got it to nurse, and it makes us busy. The health and safety of children was an ongoing preoccupation for women in the 19th century. Five of Jane Morehouse's nine children survived, and in her 1860s journals, she records not only her delight in their progress, but also her constant anxiety about them, particularly when her husband was away. Physical ailments such as aches and fevers had to be carefully monitored. Five days of a diphtheria epidemic in 1879 took three of Sarah Ricketts' 12 children. Potential accidents had to be anticipated, 
The home with its open fires, water buckets and dangerous substances was always hazardous. Outdoors, water races, open drains, streams and rivers, all attractive play areas to children were just as dangerous. One woman wrote, the first place to look for a lost child was the well. Older children were expected to look out for the younger ones. And for women absorbed in household work, it was often impossible to oversee all their activities. Mariah Richmond, pregnant at the time of her infant niece's accidental drowning in a garden pond, expressed in writing what many mothers no doubt felt. Until children are given to us, it seems as though half the possibilities in human life for bringing joy or sorrow remain unrevealed. Women's caring role was part of the family contract and valued by Christian belief. Sarah Coburn, for example, born in 1864, was a stalwart member of the Queenstown Presbyterian Church for more than 70 years. Born in Scotland, Sarah's family immigrated to New Zealand and eventually settled in Queenstown. After two years of schooling, Sarah stayed home at age 11 to look after her father because her mother was busy and often away from home, working as a midwife. Age 15, she moved to the Reese Valley to keep house for her brothers, who were establishing a farm. Using the clear night sky conditions as a chance to forward her interest in astronomy, a passion she shared with her brother George. Aged 18, she became a governess to three children on a remote sheep station. Married at age 22 to John Salmond, she went on to have eight children, three of whom became leaders in New Zealand's Presbyterianism. Sarah's life involved care of family, father, brothers, children of employers, and then her own children. Historians have argued that colonial New Zealand was distinguished by the expectation of family rather than state support in times of need. In those expectations, unmarried daughters had an important yet often unnoted role to play. We find in obituaries that the elderly often resided with their unmarried daughters. Brothers might contribute to the keep of their parents, but it, brothers might contribute to keep, but it was daughters who provided the daily care. Unmarried daughters who trained in medicine or nursing in the late 19th and early 20th century might be regarded as ideal carers for ailing parents or siblings and be recalled home, expected to give up their profession in the face of family needs. But such training was by no means usual. More common was the youngest daughters, like Mosgill woollen mill worker Bessie Turnbull, who chose not to marry because, she said, I thought it was my duty to stand by my mother and give her a good ending in life. One woman, born in 1905, trained to be a teacher. The very same day she was appointed to a teaching job, she received a telegram from her mother. Come home, grandmother very ill, doctor says long illness. She recalled, I knew at once that, as I was the only daughter, I must be at home with mother, seeing that she had sent for me. I felt it was fair. My mother had helped my father in his work tremendously. Grandmother had helped mother in the house. Family obligation. I just had to go home. It was an inner knowing. A home could con contain multiple generations and a diversity of arrangements. Mary Downey Stewart, for example, acted as, as hostess and companion for her brother when he became Mayor of Dunedin in 1913, 
And then when he returned from the First World War crippled by arthritis, she supported him through his parliamentary career. Her commitment to her brother and her involvement in a number of women's organisations exemplified her lo loosely held personal belief that a woman's real, woman's real social value lay in her power of sympathy and service. Single women might find companionship and care and a commitment to each other. A Miss Ferguson who worked in the far north as a district nurse was accompanied by a Miss Kidner who received a small assistance wage from the health department. When Miss Ferguson left the service, the two women set up a poultry farm together outside Whanganui. A happy family life was of course not guaranteed and the burdens of caring could sometimes, then and now, be extreme. When the elderly were cantankerous and ungrateful, or family members were violent or required care beyond the resources of the family. Institutions could play a vital role in relieving those in intolerable situations. In 1890, a Mrs Fraser found she could no longer nurse her husband, who was driven mad by the pain of his advanced cancer of the rectum. He would not allow himself to be touched or cleaned. Mrs Fraser asked her clergyman to approach Frederick Truby King to have her husband admitted to the Seacliff Asylum. Although he could find no evidence of insanity, Truby King admitted the 69-year-old father of nine who died in the asylum eight months after admission. Violence might be another reason for committal. When her 27-year-old son attacked her sometime in June 1910, the mother of Rupert MacDonald had to run to the neighbours for help. She no longer felt safe caring for him at home, and his committal relieved her of the fear of her son's uncontrollable rages. Within the asylum, those men were cared for by other men, male attendants, a group whose caring role requires more examination. Margaret Tennant's work has shown that the profile of the aged in the late 19th century was very different from that of today. There was a predominance of elderly men in the population, without friends of family, they had no one to care for them. This led to a sudden demand for old age welfare services. In a wonderful piece of writing, Margaret discusses how the Wellington Benevolent Institute, looking for ways to keep elderly men occupied in the 1890s, hit on the solution of hiring them out as sandwich board men. Thereby, she notes, advertising the old men's indigence as well as the products concerned. Um, I couldn't find a local photograph of sandwich board men, so this is uh, cheating because it's uh, an English from London, but you know these men had to parade up and down the street with advertisements on them. When the men used the proceeds from their advertising work to spend on drink rather than warm clothing, they were held to be an example of supreme ingratitude. By 1910, 81% of those in institutions for the elderly were old men, and the number stood at 79% in 1921. But those in institutions remained a very small minority, under 5% of those aged over 65. If the elderly had relatives, those relatives were expected to provide their care. If this family contract broke down, those in need might enact proceedings to remind their relatives of their duties. 
1916, a 67-year-old mother took proceedings for maintenance against her four sons who failed to support her since she could not live on the meagre old age pension. The only son to appear before the magistrate earned two pound a week. That's about $260 in today's terms. He had nine children and three of his sons were serving in the war. The magistrate excused him from contributing to his mother's keep, but ordered the three other sons to contribute weekly at rates of two and six to three shillings per week. Some commentators bemoaned that the introduction of the Old Age Pension Act in 1898 had decreased children, children's willingness to care for their parents. In 1903, the Christchurch Press commented that this new trend revealed a sad deterioration in the moral tone of the community. Children with physical or intellectual disabilities might require a lifetime of care. In March 1919, Elizabeth and William Raylands were charged with depri depriving their mentally defective, in the language of the time, son uh, with the necessities of life. So the papers are full of headlines about this case. The couple, parents of eight children, farmed in the Paparoa district. William Raylands had suggested that their son, described as an imbecile, should be sent to a mental hospital or a home but had been overruled by his wife. Elizabeth wanted to keep her son in the family and had done so for 29 years. He was of exceedingly dirty habits, tore any clothing put on him, and had no control over his appetite, reportedly eating like an animal. In warm weather, he was put in a shed to sleep. It was the condition of this shed that enraged a visiting constable who instituted charges against the Raylands. Neighbours, however, were quick to spring to the family's defence. The son in question, they claimed, was treated just like the other children and was always well fed, a view confirmed by the medical superintendent of the Avondale Mental Hospital, who could find no signs of ill treatment. In his verdict, the judge ruled that the elderly couple had done their best in the most difficult circumstances and sentenced them to imprisonment until the rising of the court that day. As the Raylands case suggests, fathers were much more likely to want to institutionalise intellectually disabled children than mothers. In the mid-20th century Pākehā world, a view often prevailed that so-called normal children in the family would suffer if a disabled child remained at home. <coughs> The demands of a child unlikely to develop normally were regarded as taking a mother's attention away from her other children to their detriment, as if families had a closed and limited circle of emotional energy. Children with Down syndrome, microcephalus, and other types of congenital conditions were often sent as infants to a special facility in Nelson. One couple whose eldest daughter, Lorraine, was institutionalised in the early 1940s, did not discuss her existence, although the mother, Mrs D, kept visiting her. Harmony in this family was maintained through denial. At the time of her interview in 1966, Mrs D's two sons, aged 19 and 17, were unaware that they had an elder sister and she only agreed to be interviewed in a car on the street
away from the family home. A large-scale survey carried out in the early 1970s in New Zealand indicated that mothers had sole responsibility for considerable numbers of the intellectually handicapped and for an increasing proportion of those in the older age groups. Examples range from a divorced 22-year-old mother working and caring for her son with Down syndrome with the help of her parents-in-law to a 97-year-old Māori woman living in a rural township caring for her 20-year-old great-grandson whom she had reared from childhood. Such caring by kin is powerfully depicted in Vincent Ward's documentary in Spring, One Part Plants Alone. Have any of you seen that? In the 1980 film, we see the care of an 82-year-old kuia, Puhi, for her fully grown and totally dependent 40-year-old son, Nikki. The filmmaker's deep concentration on the relationship mirrors the attentiveness Puhi paid to her son. Māori families, where support of the wider kin was expected, where it was available, were much less likely to choose institutionalisation for intellectually disabled children. If there was a wider kin network, mothers were released from the primary expectation of care. Significantly more intellectually disabled Māori than Pākehā children were the responsibility of other relatives, most notably grandparents. Since the 1980s, technologies and tests, such as ultrasound and amniocentesis, have raised new societal questions about disability and caring. Rainer Rapp suggests that women are today's moral pioneers, negotiating the decision-making involved with the choice of abortion in the face of new knowledge about abnormalities derived from novel tests. Such tests make it possible to circumvent the burden of caring for the disabled, a position which the group Saving Downs deeply disagree, seeing it as the modern version of eugenics. Instead, they would like to see a society that doesn't discriminate against those with disabilities. Individuals may decide to circumvent the burden of caring for disabled infants through prenatal testing, but we cannot escape the needs of the elderly, which we may all too soon become in the same way. Between 1850 and 2000, women's life expectancy increased dramatically by nearly 10 years. At the beginning of the new millennium, the life expectancy of Pākehā women at birth was nearly 82 years, while for Māori women it was 73. Māori women were more likely than other women to keep working over age 65. The late Mary Mary Penfold asserted, retirement is not in the way of thinking for many Māori elders. We've been taught to survive, how to cope with our responsibilities, and a sort of separation between work and retirement isn't our way of viewing the world. Women are likely to outlive men by five years, meaning that an increasing proportion of women live in homes alone. In 2001, 62% of those over 75 were female and over 95% uh, were Pākehā. At 85 plus, 31% of women are in residential care. Caring Counts is the title of a 2012 Human Rights Commission report into the aged care workforce. As many as 48,000 workers, the great majority of whom are women, perform the work of care in residential homes for the elderly. 
Nearly a quarter of those carers are migrants from, among other places, the Philippines, the Pacific Islands and China. Because the work is done by women in caring roles, it is underpaid. According to one worker, an 18-year-old working at the first fast food restaurant Burger King was paid more than she was. Maintenance men and gardeners at residential facilities are routinely paid more than the women who do arduous daily tasks, assisting residents with showering, eating, dressing and general mobility, as well as providing an essential social contact. As Judy McGregor has written, there are many physically demanding tasks of such caring, but it is centrally about social relationships the emotional umbilical cord between the women working as carers and the older people they care for. The Human Rights Commission concluded, pay inequality between home and residential-based caring and those doing much the same work in public hospitals cannot continue to be condoned when it was publicly funded. Quite simply, it is a fundamental breach of human rights. Yet decent pay for the workers, which we might hope will be the outcome of the recent Christine Bartlett case, is not the end of the story. McGregor noted the lucky ones in residential care are those who have loving partners, friends and families who call in often and sometimes take the resident out for a day. Dignity and fulfilment require care from all directions. In her book, Hearts of Wisdom, American Women Caring for Kin, 1850-1940, Emily Abel suggests that her historical inquiry leads to a number of explanations for the low status now accorded to caregiving. She suggests that the privilege typically deprecate the humanity of subordinate groups and deride the work of caring for them. We could think, for example, of the low status of psychiatric or psychopedic nurses in the past. Abel argues there has been a decline in the cultural value attached to the three major components of caring, instrumental, spiritual and emotional, between 1850 and 1940. By the instrumental, she refers to the medical care that was once women's realm, the poultices and plasters found in recipe books, for example, which were undermined by the professionalisation of medical care, both in medicine and in nursing. By the spiritual work, she refers to the ways in which sickness and death were regarded as religious as well as medical events, where in European society, Bible reading and prayer were part of the ritual of attending to others. In her discussion of the emotional dimension of care, she suggests that literature once celebrated women's emotional involvement. In the past, women were encouraged to find meaning in their closeness to the sufferings of others. But as nursing professionalised, too much intimacy became discouraged. Emotional attachment became seen as an indulgence and likely to distort patients' needs. I think we can add secularisation more broadly to Abel's explanation for the low status of caregiving. Callum Brown's work on secularisation in Britain um, shows how uh, in the 1960s a new emphasis on self-fulfilment came to the fore and women's involvement in church declined markedly. Brown traces the way in which cultural narr narratives of feminine fulfilment through home and family fell away 
Increasingly, women's magazines paid less attention to how to, to contentment in the domestic sphere and gave more emphasis to wider social issues, careers and women's rights. According to Brown, the 1960s saw the dissolution of Christianity from the everyday culture, family life and meaningful identity of most people. The church's validation of women's caring role became discounted, just as the feminist movement arose to assert women's independence and rights. Yet feminism itself aimed to care for those in the sisterhood, to promote the interests of women against male power. Whereas a Christian commitment to temperance inspired the first wave feminists seeking the vote, second wave feminists were inspired by a raft of ideas such as the personal is political. So women began creating new institutions such as childcare centres, women's refuges, rape crisis and women's health centres. They also began to study what women had been doing and what they wanted to do. Women's studies became a recognised field and women's history too. In the last decades of the 20th century, women's labour force participation increased at double the rate of men's. Caring for children, for parents and others in need increasingly has to be squeezed around work commitments. As long ago as 1945, Swedish feminist and the driving force in the creation of the Swedish welfare state, Alva Myrdal, wrote that unproductive age groups have no assured place in the new economic order of individualistic money-making in nationwide competitive markets. And as economist Nancy Fulbrough has recently remarked, the same may be said for those who take care of those unproductive groups. She suggested that it has proved much easier for women to win new rights for themselves than to impose new obligations of caring on men. Modern work, Marilyn Waring has powerfully reminded us in Counting for Nothing, has globally been counted as men's work. Is there a way to reevaluate work, uncoupling work and caring from gender, so that there is time in our lives for the shadow labour on which we all depend? New exhortations about self-fulfilment propelled women out of the church and voluntary work into the workforce. But that workforce remains organised on traditional models of a male working week. We need new ways to think about the organisation of work to take account of caring and a language to validate it. Political philosopher Nancy Fraser argues for the concept of a universal caregiver, where gender is uncoupled from caregiving, men take equal responsibility and where citizens' lives integrate wage earning and caregiving. We should perhaps think what would happen if caregivers withdrew their labour. How many children would be wandering the streets? How many disabled people would be stranded in their beds? How many elderly would starve? Imagining this reminds us of the centrality of caring today, as I hoped I pointed to its shifting importance in the past. Women's reproductive and domestic work has been as central as men's productive work. But I want to leave the last word to Gladys Thetford, with whom I began. She had written these words carefully out as a daily reminder of the wider meaning of care. Our purpose is not to see through one another, but to see one another through. Thank you.